Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where every week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. We began this season speaking about indigenous resilience in the face of savage white supremacy. As we wrap up season two, we'll be exploring the question, so where does that leave white people? Everything else we're doing right now becomes irrelevant if we don't get present to this. And this will just be a crack in the egg of our white fragility. (laughs) Let's put it that. (laughs) That was Joe Henderson, a lifetime student and practitioner of non-aggressive martial arts, as well as a student and practitioner of personal immersive development with 35 years experience of training facilitation. Joe is the founder and director of Next Level Trainings, Philadelphia. If you're a longtime Demystifying Diversity podcast listener, you'll recognize Next Level Trainings as one of our season one sponsors. One of their acts of allyship was to provide early startup capital to this podcast, which has supported us in amplifying just under 200 mostly marginalized voices. Here's Joe's background. So my family comes from North Carolina. I mean, I haven't traced all the way back, but I believe Norway, and I mean, it's, it's white. It's white. All of the people you'll hear from in this episode are white. We'll provide more formal introductions later, but just to give you a mental picture, here are a few of their voices. I am uh, a white guy, <laughs> uh, cisgender white guy. I'm based in San Rafael, California, basically the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California. The fact of the matter is is myself as a white woman, I have been given better choices and opportunities. Well, if I were to break down my heritage, I would say 50% Irish, 25% German, 25% Italian. I am an upper class white male wasp. So that's my background, but that doesn't remotely define who I am. Spoiler alert, this episode won't be about shaming white people for the circumstances of their birth or the history that has resulted in white skin privilege. Instead, we'll spend the next hour delving into the past and seeing its enduring impacts in the present. And next week, we'll talk about ways to move forward as empowered allies. And the thing is, Privilege exists as a spectrum and across a number of different intersections. You can be a person who's privileged in some areas while marginalized in others. As you're listening to this, whoever you are, wherever you are, I'd invite you to think about the importance of allyship in your own life. Not just where you need allies, but where you can be an ally to others. To be frank, anybody that is listening has some amount of privilege, right? As, you know, we have privilege that we have this access to internet. We have a privilege that we are English speaking. Most of the people listening are probably in the US or Europe, the UK or uh, Australia in areas where we have more opportunities than other people. So we all have, there's always someone who has less privilege than you. And so we all, and, and recognizing that we all do have some privilege being where we are is important. And I also, I'm white, and I live in San Francisco. Yeah, there, there, there are many ways that I'm very privileged. And yet, 
Throughout my life, I have come across barriers because I'm a woman. That was Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally, Actions You Can Take for a Stronger, Happier Workplace. Melinda is a diversity and inclusion expert who works as a strategic advisor for tech companies, tech hubs, and governments around the world. Her TED Talk, Three Ways to Be a Better Ally in the Workplace, is a must-watch, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. In our conversation, Melinda shared that the absence of allyship can be, and often is, traumatizing. We spoke about everything from small verbal or behavioral slights to the deadly ramifications of racism. After George Floyd's murder in 2020, many white people were catalyzed into acts of allyship. But those we interviewed were working towards racial justice long before that. They'd already woken up to America's racism. Here is Ryan Honeyman a partner at Lyft Economy and co-author of the B Corp Handbook, How to Use Business as a Force for Good. Ryan provides diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting services to B Corps and other social enterprises with a specific focus on working with white-led and or majority white companies to educate, organize, and mobilize white-identified people towards collective liberation. I joined Lyft Economy and started working with them around 2015. And also it was around the time my daughter was born, who's six now. And this was also a time when Trayvon Martin was shot and Freddie Gray and Eric Garner and Philando Castile. And it, it just was undeniable to me and I think to many people that this was a crisis that had already been clear, I think, to many folks of color for like a long, long time. But, you know, admittedly, the sort of openness around like having my daughter and then those those sort of events coupled with Me Too and Dakota Access Pipeline and Trump getting elected shifted my thinking and work around, hey, we really need to talk about dismantling white supremacy and, and discussing systemic racism. And so I think the last few years have been really around this exploration of what does it mean to be a white guy born into undeserved but born into characteristics of majority culture, like what is my role in helping to break down that system? John Monahan, Director of Partnership at All Aces, Inc., has over 20 years of community engagement and problem solving stemming from his experience in law enforcement. John is a former massage therapist and martial arts devotee turned law enforcement officer who, after retiring from the position of chief of police in New Hampshire, became a full-time advocate for racial equity and social justice. In about 2014, I started seeing all these shootings on our black men and police brutality like I'd never seen before. And it was disgusting to me. I was so bothered by it. And then I started learning about things like white privilege. And I was like, wow, that doesn't land very well for the people who need to hear it. But I was intrigued and I wanted to learn more. And so I really started kind of studying what I could learn about online. You know, northern New Hampshire is a very white place. You know, the fences and the snow and the houses and the people like it's all really white. There's not a lot of diversity up there, but I wanted to learn. And I had this really deep sense that, you know, similar to men taking a bigger role in stopping gender-based violence, that police officers of all people needed to take a bigger role in stopping police brutality. 
For Brian Miller, executive director of Heeding God's Call to End Gun Violence, a grassroots and faith-based organization headquartered in Philadelphia whose mission is to reduce and prevent gun violence, it was also gun violence that compelled him to take an active role in racial justice. Only it wasn't the death of another unarmed black or brown person. It was the murder of his white brother. On November 22nd, 1994, Mike was working at a desk in Washington, D.C. police headquarters on detail from the FBI, working on, ironically, on uh, cold case gun homicides. And he had just been pulled in off the street because they spelled these folks. And we were really thrilled that he was not going to be on the street, uh, for at least for a while. But a man that was intent on killing the chief of homicide walked into D.C. police headquarters with an, a MAC-10 assault pistol. It's a very ugly gun. And he had a 30-bullet clip or magazine uh, in the gun, and he hid it under his uh, sports jacket, which you can do with uh, assault pistols. And he walked up to the second floor and was, wasn't stopped by any security or anything else. But I guess if you were intent on mayhem, maybe normally the last place you'd think to go would be a police department. But uh, nobody bothered him and he walked down a hall and saw the word homicide on the door because uh, he was looking for the chief of homicide to kill him. Uh, but he was hepped up on drugs and anxiety, of course. So he saw the word homicide and opened that door, which was a cold case homicide squad, and pulled out his Mac and started firing. And with the first bullet, he killed Mike. Then there was a gunfight in the room. He killed Mike's uh, female FBI partner and D.C. police sergeant and then killed himself. And then there was a third FBI agent who happened to be in the room who was shot eight times but managed to get out of the room. And, of course, he's not what he used to be. Brian traces the problem of gun violence directly to racism. Without a doubt, people of color are disproportionately, in a major way, victims of gun violence. I think gun violence goes with not as a symptom, but actually part of, and they are, the first one is racism. This is in, uh, the gun industry is an all-white industry that puts guns, I mean, there are guns that they sell that this is not true for, that are hunting rifles and shotguns. But when we talk about handguns, handguns are, are the overwhelming cause of gun violence because put them in a pocket. Nobody can tell you have it. So you can walk into a store or you can get in a fight with somebody or or whatever, it's, and then just pull it out and use it. And that's what happens too often. So when it comes to handgun murders and violence, it's the overwhelmingly visited upon people of color. And I believe absolutely that the gun industry, gun violence go hand in glove with racism. Because if you look at these communities, these neighborhoods that are devastated by gun violence, which are populated in the main by people of color, they have high levels of poverty and they're overly affected by gun violence. The prioritization of profits over people dates all the way back to stolen land and stolen labor, to the attempted annihilation of Native people and the buying and selling of Black and brown folks. One of the challenges we have in the U.S. and in many other countries is the singular focus on profits is creating a lot of the problems that we've seen. 
Systemic racism is responsible for economic disparities, educational disparities, healthcare and business inequities, and so much more, like the mass incarceration epidemic. The incarceration rate in this country is affecting negatively people of color at a far higher rate, to the point where it's not a far-fetched statement to say, we lock people up that don't look like me. We don't know how to deal with them. And it can't be that, oh, there's something innately wrong with people and they would do things that would get them locked up. I mean, that's so farcical and immature and all that. That's just like self-serving white supremacy right there. Often in speaking about why white people should be allies to the BIPOC community, you'll hear people focus on the benefits to communities of color and on the moral imperative for us to be good humans to one another. And that is absolutely important. In fact, here are some of the experiences and observations that have incited empathy from those we interviewed. I remember getting on the bus and playing and way in the back of the bus because that was the awesome place to be. There was a vibration and a level of heart that I was just drawn, my brothers and sisters were just drawn there. And the bus driver stopped the bus and said, you can't sit there. And that was very puzzling. I was like, I didn't get it. And there was a line drawn on the floor. I mean, I wouldn't have seen that line. But if I, in a bigger view, There was a line drawn in the seats. Only people of color were sitting behind that line. And people ahead of that, I just didn't notice. And I was like, whoa, what the hell is going on here? It was puzzling. And I was part of it, but I didn't get any of that. It was just like, oh, that's a phenomenon. I saw water fountains that were separate, restrooms that were separate. And when we moved to Pennsylvania when I was 10, It was different. It was more, you know, quote, integrated, but it definitely wasn't equal. I was brought up in my younger years in Southern Africa. And later, when my parents went back there to South Africa proper, uh, where my father was uh, bishop in the Anglican Church, he became a major anti-apartheid activist, a very prominent one. And in doing so, he became very unpopular with the government and was ultimately arrested, imprisoned, and exiled. For those who are perhaps not so familiar with South Africa during the apartheid era, blacks were not allowed to live in white areas. So they had their own townships, as they were called, which invariably didn't have electricity or running water. They were only allowed into the white areas to work. For that, they had to have what was called a pass, which is like a passport. And they had to show that to the police at any time that they were in a white area. And their jobs were always subservient to whites, or almost always subservient to whites. It was a brutal society. There was a secret police, which was everywhere. That was Simon Chadwick. Simon grew up in apartheid South Africa. His father, Bishop Graham Chadwick, was a prominent anti-apartheid activist. 
Simon spent much of his young life in South Africa, then was educated at Oxford in politics, philosophy, and economics. Now he is a United States citizen and the author of For the People, a Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future. My father was a man of faith. He was a man of incredible faith. And for him, that faith did not allow him to sit by on the sidelines. It did not allow him to. For him, justice was absolutely paramount. And it all came to a head when there was there was what was called a school's boycott. The school's boycott came about when black school children actually refused to go to school. And the reason they refused to go to school was that the government had passed a law saying that they had to be taught in Afrikaans. Afrikaans is the language of the white Dutch oppressor. And they were not having this. They were not going to put up with it. So they, they refused to go to school. Along the way, a number of people actually managed to get the kids to go back to school because they feared that it was really ruining their education. The secret police believed that those people must know who the organizers were, and so arrested them all, including 17 of my father's priests. One of those priests died falling out of a seventh-story window under interrogation. Simon made air quotes with his fingers at the word falling, indicating that the priest's death was not at all accidental. My dad put crosses, one cross a day outside his cathedral for every day that they were incarcerated. He had the church bells rung throughout his diocese, which was the whole of Northwest South Africa, a quarter of the country, so that the police could not go anywhere without hearing a church bell. And he preached to stadiums, 20, 30, 40,000 in five different languages, urging them to keep the faith and to resist. So he became a focal point, and it was incredibly dangerous. Our house was bugged, our car was bugged. The only place we could have a conversation was deep into the yard where the bugs didn't go to. They had a unmarked car outside our gates 24 hours a day that we were followed everywhere until eventually, as I say, he, he was finally arrested. But all through this, it was his sense of justice that kept him going. And my mother's very, very quiet English, rock-solid support for him. Not all of those we spoke with for this episode saw racism early in their life. Or if they did, they didn't know what they were seeing until later on. Alex Vaccaro, for example. I'm a product of, of generations that have witnessed what has transpired in our country. I was born in 61. You know, I'm 10 years old. I see race riots and I see all sorts of things happening. I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, and my dad worked for IBM. And I never heard my parents ever make a derogatory comment, a racial comment, a slur. I, it was foreign to me. And then I went to college in Boston. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I, I heard things that I never heard before. And then I went to med school down at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and, and sort of the world changed. And then I went to Los Angeles at Cedar sinai for an internship. And there we have it. We were introduced to the real world. So in my little cocoon that I grew up in, where everyone was equal and everyone was equally represented and we had sort of an inclusive environment, 
I was introduced to the world at hand. Alex is the Richard H. Rothman Professor and Chairman, Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and Professor of Neurosurgery at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has over 830 peer-reviewed and 210 non-peer-reviewed publications and is the president of Rothman Institute, chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, co-director of the Regional Spinal Cord Injury Center of the Delaware Valley, and co-director of Spine Surgery and the Spine Fellowship Program at Thomas Jefferson University where he instructs current fellows and residents in the diagnosis and treatment of various spinal problems and disorders. Black, indigenous, and people of color are suffering as a direct result of systems of oppression, and ethically, we want to support our fellow human beings. But real talk? Why should white people care? I mean, aren't they benefiting from those systems? Jen O'Ryan, the founder of Double Tall Consulting and the author of Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts and a self-titled accidental expert in diversity and inclusion, told me that it is damaging to solely surround ourselves with people who look and think like we do. I don't know if you've ever seen a homogenous group of people make a decision. It's very effective and they make bad decisions very quickly. (laughs) And then they proceed with these bad decisions and they just compound them. But if you are willing to be uncomfortable and if there's a safe and trusted space where people can challenge each other's viewpoints and actually get to that better outcome and better idea, I mean, that's just a more healthy way to do it. And it's going to lead to better outcomes and, and more innovation and people who are more engaged. The data backs this up. Diverse companies enjoy 2.3 times higher cash flow per employee. Diverse management boosts revenue by 19%. Diverse teams are 87% better at making decisions. And diverse companies are 70% more likely to capture new markets. Ryan Honeyman told me that even when homogenous corporate structures seem to be effective, the positive impact they make isn't actually doing much to bring about positive change for diverse groups, but is only benefiting a small subset of the population. Business as usual mindset of just growing and growing and growing and taking venture capital and getting bigger and bigger and then making a lot of money for basically wealthy white guys who already have money. Hey, wealthy white guys, don't panic. Next week, we'll delve into how diverse and inclusive business practices generate more wealth and abundance for all people, including you. But since y'all are used to going first, let's take a moment to talk about how and why many existing corporate structures are exclusionary by design. Workplace cultures were often created And systems, workplace systems as well, are often created um, before many of us were even allowed to work legally. And so unless we've actively corrected those and unless we've actively kind of dissected them and dismantled them or really looked at what needs to change in them and then rebuild them for all of us, then they're just not made for everybody. They're not made for women. They're not made for Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks, Asian folks, they're not built for LGBTQIA folks, they're, they're not built for people with disabilities, veterans even, and um, really, even religious minorities um, as well. So we have to actively work to examine them and rebuild them. And if we don't do that, then it's not made for us. 
we're back to the same question. If these systems were made by white people, predominantly white men, why should white people be invested in dismantling them? Isn't that against their own interests? Actually, no. There are benefits to privilege. Denying that would be naive and overly reductionistic. But there are far more downsides than upsides. One of the mindsets that many white people have had, like what you're speaking to, is, hey, all we need to do is help folks of color, like, basically learn the ways of this entirely dominant white system and just then they'll be fine. There's very little self-reflection on whiteness and its infiltration and sort of ability to create blindness about how we are actually the ones perpetuating that. And so I think a lot of my learning has been around how is our current system of, of racism and white supremacy actually benefiting me and other white people? Like, let's not joke, like there are many benefits of whiteness, but what are the costs? And I think many white people don't actually understand the costs of white supremacy and, and racism. For example, the opioid crisis in the United States is basically a lot of white people killing themselves and overdosing because they've been told the story of the color of my skin should make me have this like great life, but I'm not living that life. And so, or, or the life I thought is not the one I'm living. And so that gap is creating such crazy depression and suicide that white people are killing themselves over it and like overdosing. So, you know, climate change is another one. It's like this belief in white dominant, Western dominant sort of thinking around like, you know, we can keep growing our extraction of resources from the earth infinitely is leading to like my family, like my children potentially getting killed, <laughs> you know, d shifting like from climate change. And so I, I think I've really over the last few years connected the costs of whiteness and that they're actually much higher than the benefits. The benefits are part of the way that the system makes you think you're benefiting mm -hmm. is like, oh yeah, but look, you get the this, this, but what are we giving up? Many white people don't know we don't know where we're from, like our cultures, like you might vaguely know we're Scotch Irish, but what is our connection to culture? What is our connection to like music and dancing? And what is our connection to, what have we lost? What are the costs of giving up who we are and who we've been as a people to this sort of like fallacy of whiteness? And so I think that's the work that I'm really been engaged in and really looking at is the costs of racism and and white supremacy are actually much, much, much greater to white people than we realize. What will it take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one? Make unity and inner peace the only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Red, white, and blue In their interview last season, Paul Reese recommended I read Jonathan Metzl's Dying of Whiteness, which offers an in-depth examination of white America and conclusively demonstrates that chasing false promises of supremacy is killing white people. 
John Monahan knows the consequences of racial resentment and its deadly ramifications. So I'd been doing racial equity work in my role as a police chief with criminal justice reform. And I, I go to this conference and I got to meet Atia and it turns out she runs this firm. And I was like, like stumbling over myself, like, no, no, I'm like not a bad policeman. Like, like I'm the type that really gives a crap about this. And, and she was just laughing at me because she thought it was so funny that I had this preconceived notion that I might be vilified. And she's like, John, you know, racism hurts white people too. And I'd never heard that before. And I was like, oh, damn, like, I didn't know that. Like, and I could felt like I could take a breath. And I think a lot of white people need to hear that. John was referring to Dr. Atia Martin, the CEO and founder of All Aces, Inc. Let's be clear. White supremacist systems disproportionately put BIPOC lives at risk. But denials of white supremacy keep society locked in systems that are all around dehumanizing. I think the George Floyd case in particular, you know, Black Lives Matter existed for a long time before the Black, yeah, George Floyd case. But that kind of showed in the mirror that we have our backs to the wall. And it brought out, I think, a lot of people of very different backgrounds to say, this is not acceptable. Now, one of the things, having said that, one of the things that happened after that and happened after January 6th was a whole bunch of politicians going on TV and saying, this is not who we are. And I'm afraid the answer is, yes, it is. If you go back in history, the Civil War, the institution of slavery, the Tulsa massacre, the Wilmington massacre, the assassinations of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, we have been like this from the very beginning, the trail of tears, for God's sake. For some reason, as a nation, we are much, much more oriented around the individual than we are around society. And that is something that we have to deal with in our own psyche. When left unchecked, American individualism is a dangerous force because it steals our capacity for empathy, engenders a false sense of separation, and keeps us locked in cycles of oppression. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. 
As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. If everything good in life is a result of each person's isolated actions, then I don't have to care about you, and you don't have to care about me. We're in competition, and there's no reason to get involved in making the world better. Also, individual accomplishment doesn't exist. Sure, people can and do achieve incredible things, but no one can succeed solely on their own merit. We all require allyship. How allies have made a difference in my life is usually little things. So when I was in graduate school, I was at Art Center in Pasadena, and I realized at a certain point that while I had been kind of growing in the art world, I wanted to move into film. Filmmaking was really kind of where I was headed. I was doing video art and just kind of moving more and more in that direction and realized that that school was no longer kind of giving me what I needed and really wanted to go to USC film school. I was not a typical applicant. And so I knew that was going to be a big challenge for me. And so I asked one of my professors at Art Center, who was also teaching at USC, if he would give me a recommendation. Well, he didn't just give me a recommendation. He gave me a recommendation and then walked that recommendation and my application into the office of the head of the school, put it on her desk and said, you need to meet with her. Right. And so that got me in a door. I had to get myself to the next place because she did reach out and interviewed me and I did do well in that interview, but it was a door that probably wouldn't have been open otherwise. And so, you know, just that, that act, it probably took him an extra, you know, he's probably already on campus, right? It took him an extra 20 minutes to do that. Um, but he used his influence to help me and made a big difference in my life for sure. So then again, we go back to the inherent bias. So it's like the whole conversation of like, well, I worked hard for what I have and I made good decisions. And no, the, the fact of the matter is, is 
myself as a white woman, I have been given better choices and opportunities. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia to like a middle class family. I'm the youngest of three. My parents are, are still together. Fortunately, like still alive, everyone's healthy. So I grew up in that type of environment. And a lot of my friends had the same type of dynamic. So that, that's what I was going through life up until I started this project. That was the extremely innovative and human-centered Rob Lawless. In November of 2015, Rob set out to make 10,000 friends through hour-long one-on-one conversations. Now, halfway through, he has spoken to people of a variety of backgrounds and identities from more than 75 countries and can see how his life experiences have enabled him to take certain risks while being loved and supported in his passions and his purpose. So I'm 30 now. I have a brother who'll be 32 next month, a sister who'll be 36, and then fortunate to still have both of my parents. So I feel like I came from a very loving family and something that I now can see as a luxury. And like I said, having the ability to go to college and focus just on my studies was something I I wouldn't have had gratitude for maybe back then. But now I do very much more so. I'm just still graduated with student loans and things like that. But there's a lot of blessings that I've had in my life that I've been able to see as I've gotten out and talk to people from other backgrounds. Anyone who's achieved their personal and professional goals will tell you that they had help getting there. They had allies, people who cared about them and made that clear through their actions. I mean, that's what you're seeing play out now, you know, is that my rights are more important than, you know, the health and well-being of the community that I'm in. When you're always thinking I'm in competition with you for scarcity of resources and and that if you have to lose in order for me to win, you know, we start to see that tear in the fabric of our society where, where I'm an individual competing against you as an individual rather than, you know, we are in community together and when you do well, I will do well. Like we can help each other work our way up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, to, to self-actualization, not just food and shelter and clothing. We need to move away from comparison and competition into creation and collaboration on all levels. And whether it's inclusion and diversity in the schools, like nature already tells us that variety is the best solution for survival, right? That was Emily Anderson, marketing director and lifestyle expert turned human-centered designer who specializes in digital empowerment. When she's not working on another book project or using her writing as a catalyst for change, Emily is striving to bring about gender diversity in tech through her work as a coding teacher for Girls Who Code. The problem is that even if we acknowledge that variety is beneficial, differences can be scary. I asked Simon Chadwick what inspired him to write for the people. Well, to put it very, very simply, Trump. And that's oversimplifying, but when he was elected president, alarm bells were ringing in my head massively. And it wasn't just him. It was having lived in South Africa, having lived in Kenya, which was another autocratic society, even though it was nominally a democracy. I could see all the hallmarks of America sliding into autocracy, sliding into oppression and 
sliding into a type of society that I don't think most people in this country want to live in. But at the same time, as I saw all of that, and I saw Trump being elected, I was thinking to my myself, you can't really sort of write opinions about that without actually trying to understand why this is happening. So I really started then to to research. I'd, I'd already you know been active in in political theory and so on, but to really research what's going on underneath the surface in our society. What is what is happening that is propelling people to support this anti-democratic approach to life. And as I did so, a number of things became clearer and clearer. But one which really resonated was that more than many other countries, certainly many other developed countries, the United States of America has devolved into a country where there is too much fear. And this is really interesting because if you look at our founding documents, the word liberty is sprayed everywhere. And if you look at the root or the roots of the word liberty in the Latin word libertas, one of the translations of that word is freedom from fear. So what we've got here is a juxtaposition between a country that believes in liberty and freedom, and we have fear, which you know we believe in, in having freedom from fear, but we have fear baked into uh, society. America is terrified. And frankly, it can be a terrifying place to be. We're in trouble as a species. We're in trouble because we could, we've imperiled the possibility of our own existence. No surprise to anybody who is awake in the Philadelphia area. Philadelphia is flooded by illegal guns. The absence of allyship is quite literally killing people domestic violence cases like gender-based violence was really bothering me because it was like the same show with different actors. And I was like, there's a pattern to this, but I didn't know what to do. And, and I started learning about gender-based violence and how we raise our young male identified folks up and how damaging some of the, the toxic manhood stuff can be. And, you know, and it leads to depression and suicide and substance abuse and, and domestic violence. Not only is the absence of allyship scary, the lack of it can make it impossible to break out of cycles of suppression. I've heard people say, like, I don't know, I don't know about this racism stuff, but if you're not the the victim of it, I'm not sure you get to decide that, right? Like, so same thing with violence against women, right? Like, if you are a man, like, and you're like, well, I don't think it's that bad. Well, you're not a woman. You're not the one feeling the effects of sexism. So... There is like this entitlement, I think, that a lot of white guys have around issues that don't affect them. And it takes empathy and compassion to realize that someone else is really bearing the brunt of some harsh stuff in this world. And I just feel like if you've got the privilege to not have to deal with it, then maybe lend a hand, you know, like it's your job as a citizen in this, in this world to lend a hand to help ease the suffering of others. 
If we want to ease the suffering of others and ease our own suffering as well, empathy is essential. If you're empathetic to the, the plight of other people, then you're more likely to get involved. And people who do already have empathy for those who have been or are currently being marginalized can begin to develop more compassion and deepen their investment in allyship if they can draw parallels between their own experiences and the experiences of others. I've always been interested in um, business as a force for good and now technology as a force for good. But over the last few years, Trying to break into the technology industry as a woman, as a mom, a almost 50-year-old woman, it has been super challenging because I, as a privileged white woman, have enjoyed you know, access and access to the building blocks that I need to promote myself and move forward in the world, right? So my connections from childhood on up, my parents' connections, my grandparents, like all of that, I understand it's all connected. So where I am now, I am able to, you know, and my kids are privileged. So they are getting the connections from my experience. And I, as a privileged white woman, have not been able to crack into the technology industry in a meaningful way. And so it's the first time that I've honestly felt bias. It's like ageism all of a sudden because the doors don't just magically swing open for me anymore. It's gotten really personal for me. Emily has always had empathy. It's just that she couldn't personally relate to other people's experiences of being on the subjugation end of isms until she found herself subjected to sexism and ageism. Rob Lawless also said that he sees empathy as something that can be developed. I want there to be that creation of empathy that I've seen in my own life. It's not just the overt acts of aggression that make the nightly news or catalyze millions to march in solidarity that can call us forward to empathy. In fact, if you're seeking to make a difference in the lives of those in the various communities you belong to, it can be impactful and accessible to start small. Microaggressions are they're often kind of based in our biases. So they're kind of learned ways that we think about people and learned phrases that might be unintentionally usually harmful that might have their roots in racism, sexism, ableism, heterosexism, etc. They might be rooted in those things without us even knowing it necessarily that can be really harmful to people. And It's the little everyday slights, little everyday actions, non-actions sometimes, inactions, and there are little ways that we have, that we actively exclude people, and little ways that we are creating harm to each other. The concept of hidden biases mean they're hidden biases. You don't even understand biases that you have. I don't even understand the biases I have. But the fact that we realize we have them allows us to be more open-minded as we go forward. Biases are interwoven into everything from our attitudes to our apps. When you're talking about uh, bias specifically, anything that happens in the real world is just amplified in the digital world and in the technology world. Everything that you encounter in the digital world, like in in an app, everything has been specifically chosen to be there based on a profile and we call it user personas. 
And the user personas do not take into consideration the full extent of the diversity that is really within our society. So, you know, we talk about inclusion and diversity, but it's really the systems, you know, and like there is systemic racism, and this is exactly what systemic racism is about. Technology bias is far from innocuous. Technology biases are based in human biases because humans created the technology. If you don't have, you aren't building technology with a diverse team of people that are really thinking, that have empathy, that are thinking and building in a way that is inclusive and equitable, you're thinking about equity as well and the equity outcomes, then uh, if you don't have that, then you're bound to create technology that perpetuates some stereotypes, perpetuates some biases, and um, sometimes can actively, really actively create harm. I mean, even looking at when airbags first were developed, they were developed with men in mind. And as a result, women and children were killed, with, you know, because they hadn't thought through the different weight dynamics. They hadn't thought all that through and car seats and, and things like that. So they had to go back and oh, redesign very quick, right? Um, so they didn't kill people. The same for there was drivers with cars that weren't seeing Black people because the reflector technology was that was not bouncing off of their skin in the same way. So the cars were hitting Black people, right? AI, that um, search engine AI that was miscategorizing Black people as apes, right? It, like Because they were looking at dark skin and, and misinterpreting. All that is human bias that has been built into the technology. And, um, and it, that means that we aren't doing enough to put together diverse teams and test technology on diverse humans so that that doesn't happen. There are so many ways that racism plays out in American society, some of which we're probably all aware of, like driving while Black. I never experienced that in my life. I've been pulled over by police for other reasons, but not for that. And you can't imagine, this is the thing that really blows my mind when you see African-American mothers saying to their children, if you get pulled over, don't say a word, keep your hands in the steering wheel because you could die. I mean, it could escalate and die. Now, as a Caucasian male, I, I don't have that fear in this country, but it's a real fear for African-American men. And that's something that we don't understand. So it sets up biases that we don't see. Like I, I can't live in his shoes. He can't live in my shoes. I don't know what he's going through. But now through education and through everyone getting behind this movement, which is great, we're having a better understanding of it. I'm talking to physicians and my managers that have gone through these problems. When a person's never experienced racial profiling or been on the receiving end of overt bias, it can feel like they're immune to racism. Here's Peter H. Renka Jr., business development officer and assistant vice president at Univest Bank and Trust, and the founder of the people-centered networking group Friends of Pete. So I think people in general are more aware of what's going on in in society, but I would tell you, very good-intentioned people of of means who are suburban people, rural people, and not just Caucasians, but all sorts of people would say. What do you mean you, you're afraid for your son or daughter to be driving at night in a different neighborhood? Or what do you mean you walk down the street and, and you see a, a couple of young black guys and you, you cross the street? Like, that's absurd. 
And then you watch somebody do it and they, they would do that. So I don't know that necessarily opened my eyes to things. It just sort of reinforced what people are up against that are different. Another stark and startling difference is in the area of healthcare, and it's not difficult to figure out why. Racial discrimination permeates the healthcare system, not just in the past with the Tuskegee experiments and other terrible abuses, but in the present. Black patients are less likely to receive adequate medical care than their white counterparts, and the ramifications are deadly, as was abundantly evident during the COVID-19 pandemic, which only served to illuminate and intensify existing disparities. We write a lot of papers, and we try to write papers that look at how disease affects different races, and it affects it differently. So when I had an African-American spine fellow that worked with me, we wrote papers on spine surgery in African-Americans. And he came back and he said, let me share the data. Number one, they're offered surgery less frequently than a Caucasian patient. Number two, they accept surgery because they have greater fears. So they're not getting the best orthopedic care possible. Oppression has led to a lack of wealth, a lack of health. Uh, you know, and all of those things that have impacted communities in ways that there is uh, less disposable income. So I think that that is something really important for, for people who don't experience these barriers to really understand that it's not just about the barriers that are right in front of you. It's also about the re- those repercussions. It's, it's the work that it takes to undo the trauma of those experiences. In order to move beyond the consequences of bias, we have to deconstruct the biases themselves, which can only be done by discovering the humanity in ourselves and in others. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Prior to entering law enforcement, John Monahan came from a background in martial arts training and shiatsu massage. I was like, you know, I want to see if I can like walk this martial path for real, like be in actual conflict and maintain my calm and be able to deal with people ethically. And so I just kind of on a whim, believe it or not, became a police officer. He has walked that path, and he's done so by engaging deeply with the communities he serves, as well as the communities of which he is a part. There's this soft side to some of these folks that you never get to see, and yet 
you know, juxtaposed to that is you do see police brutality play out in real life. And it's troublesome because both are kind of true and real. And that's this gray area that, that we have to work in. Gray areas can be difficult. We humans want easy answers and quick fixes. But here's what that's left us with. The term would be white supremacy culture, which is different than a white supremacist. I want to be clear about that. But this culture of if you could just be a little more white in the way that you talk and act and show up in the world, you'd just be more successful, right? That's the, the hidden message. And so we really work with companies to start to see that, to start to see that, that those places where that shows up is like the places where people of color really are struggling and where in different ways, even white people in the organization struggle. And very few people kind of figure out the secret to how to navigate that. And so once you're able to start to change those places and organizations, the organization can really thrive, you know, because you get a diversity of perspectives and you get people who think about things differently and who have these different life experiences that they can bring that really help the organization grow. It's so important to really have everyone at the table, or at least a multitude of identities reflected at decision-making time. There's a federally mandated laws that say you can't hire based on color, creed, race, religion. And I'm a strong supporter of diversity that our environment has to represent our environment. You know, we have to have equal male, female, equal races and so forth, but you can't say it out loud because it's against federal law, which is an interesting conundrum we, we live in. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that unless you have everyone at the table, the table's not complete. Diversity quotas don't actually bring diversity of thought, and they're not the same thing as equity, inclusion, or belonging. The power dynamics of the company are so critical. If someone proposes an idea, who gets listened to? Who gets, not punished, but who gets spoken to about certain behaviors and who doesn't? You know, I I remember one client that the, the boss had asked a woman, this was a, a white boss and a white woman, but the boss had said to the woman, like, can you just say thank you and please more when asking folks that you manage to do different tasks? And she went back through Slack and the history and she had said it like 700 times and she looked at the men and they'd only said it like 30 times. And so it was a really dis- visible way of, of seeing that, you know, there's this perception of who's politeness and like who's required to do certain things. So I would say to a lot of companies, those are the types of things you've got to identify and try to manage and eliminate from the company and work on. Because if it's a a black woman, for example, there's also those intersectional challenges as well with like how do folks see a black and brown folks. So I think it's it's just so much work to be done in the pre-work to even being ready to, to hire more folks of color. Each one will have its own unique like challenges and opportunities. What I generally find is that they have diversity at the lowest levels of their organization and it gets whiter the further you go up. And that frustrates the people at the lowest level of the organization. What is the only legacy I can say at the Rothman Institute? That's all I want to do is I want to get it to a, a place where we mirror society. We mirror society in terms of having the right people at the table. And then to go back to something else you and I had referred to before, being and doing. So you can get diversity at the table, but we have to now do. We have to now listen. We have to include people's thoughts. We have to understand that we are not similar in many different ways. So we have to learn from other people to be better than we are. 
And that sort of uh, transforms into the business model. Every single study that's come out saying a diverse workforce is much more productive, higher morale, more inclusive, uh, you get the job done, and people want to be part of the team in that situation. So it's, it's good business, and it's the right thing to do from a moral perspective. A lot of the people who would would work with me or would hire me or my colleagues, they are they do tend to be in that executive or at least higher level management because they're influencing policy decisions. And though oftentimes what they're trying to do and what the lived experiences of their employees are so vastly different that the policies that are being rolled out or the changes that are being implemented breed cynicism among the employees. And it's not even necessarily just employees, right? It's also community service providers and consumers and clients and patients of healthcare providers, it, it starts to breed this, oh, you too, you really don't get it. And it's that small incremental, oh, you don't get it either, that just compounds that feeling of there's something wrong with me. I am outside over here. I am not over there. I don't see myself in this organization. And so I'm not even going to try. And it just it just continues to isolate and marginalize different populations and we actually look at how it breaks out over different populations, then we really see where the system has failed us and where things are falling apart. There's a palpable difference between people in leadership who don't really want to make changes and people who take this attitude. Clearly, white men are a big part of the problem. So I appreciate the opportunity to show up here, but I also get that I'm a big part of the problem. I'm a big part of the problem. How I think or have thought, how I acted, and the seeds of that and the neural pathways that that creates take some major dismantling. For Joe, it's a soul imperative to do that dismantling. And he told me that he's been on this journey for a while now as someone who both has a spiritual practice and is deeply engaged with the world. But his waking up to the realities other people have been experiencing has been incremental. Every world philosophy I've ever studied says the same thing. We're one. The unity is is both conceptual and lived from that point. But it's also it's also our job to figure out that, oh, we're actually not separate. From that place, when I was able to operate from that place, it's like, oh, well, my conditioning says something way different. But I wasn't considering things like, well, what's white supremacy? What does that have to do with it? I wasn't considering any of that. Slowly but surely, I began to see, oh, well, there are less taxes being spent in this part of town. And by the way, everybody over there has brown skin or black skin. And there's different kinds of trouble going on there. But when I would meet and talk with people, they were not trouble. They were in trouble. They were dealing with things that I just took for granted. It was making an impression, but not nearly as fast as it needed to be. I asked Joe what accelerated his awakening. The shift for me is when the mother of my two daughters, first two kids, had kids with a guy she adored and loved and married. He was a black man. Beautiful guy. I loved him, too. And they had mixed kids. And all of a sudden, it became a different thing. I would say the birth of those two kids, who were not my kids, but I loved them like my kids. And then my daughter, another marriage, has a child who is mixed race as well. And Jayla is extraordinary. If I 
put us in the mirror together, side by side, I would say, well, we, we look so different in some ways, but our experience from the heart. I think that's really, to me, the, the thing that breaks human beings through. When I see my grandson or I see my ex-partner's two kids that I've loved and hold dear, and what is the experience I want them to have in the world? Now it becomes, oh, I'm on a mission here. I could never make a different choice now, but the choice can't be just mine. When it comes to dismantling systemic racism, the difference between white people and people of color is that white people have the option to opt out. Although the people we spoke to certainly didn't see opting out as a viable option. In humanity's history, where so much looks like it's falling apart, but there's also the opportunity to change it. If all of us old white supremacist carriers, even though we didn't even know we were carrying it, now we know. And that's a painful wake up. And now I feel like with white people, you can't say you weren't told. Right now, just saying that is chilling to me because I feel like, like, I don't feel like I have a choice. I just don't have a choice of stepping up and not being an asshole. And anyway, even in not making choices, we make choices. There are a million ways to communicate and you are communicating every day. It's like you communicate with your silence, right? And inaction is itself a communication. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. In each conversation with a white ally, I could feel their earnest investment. It felt imperative to each person to do something, multiple things. People can make a difference if they come together. And yes, it can be painful. But if you believe in it that much and you believe in your fellow human beings that much, you know, that's, that's doable. I'm not saying it takes a huge amount of courage and I wouldn't judge people based on lack of courage in that case. But I would say that, you know, if you have that love of other human beings, you, you can't stand by. Invariably, those who can't and don't stand by shared about being more oriented around society than self. There has been this, this struggle since the very founding of the country between those who emphasize individualism and to a certain extent authoritarianism, those who emphasize society and pulling together as a society. And what's interesting is if you go through the regimes since George Washington, about 60% of the time we've had the individualists, authoritarians in power, and about 40% of the time we've had those who actually are really thinking about society as a whole, about you know whether it be today climate change or whether it was in the Great Depression, 
rebuilding infrastructure, rebuilding society. So there's been that struggle, and it's, a, it's about a 60-40 mix over, over history. And we're seeing it played really large right now. I mean, seriously, you could not get more difference than Trump, which is America first, individuals first, screw everything, and, and you know, government, you know, don't bother about government. And you've got Biden, which is, you know, we've got to rebuild, we've got to rebuild society, we have responsibilities, and government can do it. This is an extreme that has played out throughout our history. Whatever your political leanings or your feelings about administrations past or present, it's important to acknowledge that the struggle between self and society is also a struggle between freedom and fear. There was a book written some time ago called The Dictator's Handbook. And I actually summarize it in my book to, to a certain extent. But basically, what one of the things that they said in there, the authors, was Every single authoritarian who wants to take power and, you know, is running for power has the same script. Everything's a mess. It's all the fault of, insert your favorite group here, Mexicans, Blacks, gays, women, whatever. Only I can make it better, and then everything's going to be wonderful. Now, that was the script that was followed to the letter in the 2015 campaign, to the letter. And that is the script that everybody in that kind of position puts forward. And for people who are down on their luck, fearful, aggrieved, feeling that life is unfair, this is cocaine. It really is because... Now there's somebody strong who understands me. He's going to take care of everything. Not these muddlers and wishy-washy liberal people who keep on giving my money to undeserving blacks or undeserving poor or whatever it may be. And this has been, again, something that's run through history. You were talking about the script, the exact script to become a dictator. And I was thinking about how that's actually the exact script that cult leaders use. And I was thinking that this narrative of individualism, I think, makes it so that people don't always realize when they've been brainwashed, when we've been brainwashed. It bumps up against this idea that people hold that like all of my thoughts and opinions are mine and I am my own person. And and so I think in order for people to really take different stands in society and to use their voice and, and dare I say, be more individuals, I think we almost have to acknowledge that we're not, you know, in some ways. The cult element is is so strong. And you know, just think how QAnon got to have a hold. I mean, you know, anybody can see that it's absolutely half-baked nonsense. And yet there is a third of the population probably who actually thinks that it's there's something to it. This sort of brainwashing, this sort of conspiracy theories, these these sort of theories inevitably lead, lead to a cult-like atmosphere. And a cult-like atmosphere, as you say, blocks out beliefs that are different, blocks out facts that are inconvenient, starts talking about alternative facts, and ultimately leads to idolatry. 
it is no, no coincidence that at a major conservative conference, there was a gold statue of Trump. That is not a coincidence. That is the ultimate idolatry. And it doesn't matter how much she lies. It doesn't matter how much his acolytes lie. It doesn't matter that the facts stare you in the face. You're not going to believe it because it's inconvenient. And if you, if you start questioning it, your world falls apart. Try not to be too afraid of the world falling apart. Because it doesn't have to if we humans can find ways to support and uplift one another while caring for the planet. We don't all need to find the same ways either. Next week, we'll talk about a wide range of possibilities. But for now, I'll simply say that if you're not yet convinced of the positive benefits of allyship to the ally, Rob Lawless had this to say. The reason why I'm so willing to meet with 10,000 people is because I believe every human interaction holds the potential to change your life. Exposure to difference enriches our life by exposing us to new perspectives and new ideas, prompting greater self-reflection, supporting the development of personal and professional growth, and also helping us to see that where it counts, we're essentially the same. The girl that I met today from Jordan, I feel like we clicked so well and it was so fun to talk to her and it's just a completely different circumstances and I just enjoyed the experience because... I think she was, she's like 20 years old, I'm 30. So we're coming from different generations, different religions. She's Muslim, I'm Catholic, different parts of the world. But I think that's so cool about connection is like, I could connect better with her than a lot of the like straight white guys that I've chatted with who are the same cookie cutter version of myself. And I think that's the beautiful thing about diversity too. And you like strip away the details of how people are different and you just, you take a step back and you're just more relaxed about it you realize there's not much to it. Like everyone is pretty much the same. Everyone has the same major themes to their life, but it's the details that are a little bit different. And sometimes they scare us, but you just take a step back. You're like, oh, we're all the same. We all have a family. We all have a job that we have to do or education. We all have passions that we're either working on or they're on the back burner. We want to get to them. And we all have these dreams that we, that we look forward to achieving. And that's pretty much every person is that. Assuming you believe that all humans have inherent value and assuming that you care, which you clearly do if you're listening to this, know that your intentions matter and also that the work can't stop at intention alone. Here's what Melinda had to say about the value of intention. There's multiple answers to that question um, because I do think intention matters because if your intention is good, that means that you are open to change, right? That means you're open to learning what is going to have a good impact. And so, and so in that case, that is important. Having said that, if your intention is good, it's on you to make sure that your actions are having a positive impact. You have to be responsible for your own impact. So in that case, you know, when you're talking about microaggressions, when you're talking about biases, if your intention is good, but you're still creating harm, that is not okay. Um, you have to actively create change in what you do and how you do it. So how do we put action to our intentions? Using your privilege to create change is understanding where you are, is understanding 
the privilege that you have, the influence that you have. If you don't want to use the word privilege, use influence, use power, you know, all of those things that some people have an unfair advantage. And so we use that advantage to create change so that other people have those same advantages, the same, that same privilege. We should all have privilege, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so send the ladder back down is one way to say it. Join us next week, where we'll delve into an in-depth exploration of various ways to put allyship into action. And if you really want to make a difference, listen along and learn how to up-level from ally to accomplice. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Joe Henderson, Ryan Honeyman, Emily Anderson, Rob Lawless, Peter H. Ranka Jr., Melinda Brianna Epler, John Monahan, Brian Miller, Simon Chadwick, Alex Vaccaro, and Jen O'Ryan. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sonny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.